It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Help. I need somebody. Help. Not just anybody. Help. You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 151 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. Since retiring from medical practice, I've become an activist for family caregiving. Our topic today is depression, work-related stress, and family caregiving. Depression, sometimes called major depression or clinical depression, is a serious illness that harms how a person thinks, feels, and behaves. It's not the same as normal sadness because it's persistent and it seriously interferes with daily life. It involves as many as 14 out of every 100 North American families, which makes it the most important mental illness burden on persons and their families. It has many, many causes, including work-related stress. It's associated with various mental illnesses, and sometimes it has no apparent cause. If it's untreated, it can last for weeks, months, or years. But if it's not properly treated, it can harm physical health. It's one of the most important risk factors for suicide. Up to 15% of persons with serious depression will die by suicide. It's treated with various antidepressant medications and psychotherapy, and it's cared for by family caregivers. Talking about depression, work-related stress, and family caregiving, our guest today is Jan Wong. Now, for 20 years, Jan had been one of Canada's best-known journalists. Then, one day, she turned in a news story that set off a firestorm of controversy, including death threats, a unanimous denunciation by Parliament, and a rebuke by her own newspaper. For the first time in her professional life, she fell into a severe clinical depression. Yet she resisted the diagnosis refusing to believe she had a mental illness. And her company, her employer, and insurer refused to believe she had a mental illness. With humor, grace, and insight in her book, Out of the Blue, she tells the harrowing story of her struggle with workplace-caused depression. Welcome to the show, Jan. Thank you very much. Now, Jan, first question Please tell us more about your professional career. I've been a reporter for decades. Uh, I started uh, in China where I was studying Mandarin uh, because I'm Canadian. Um, I started as a news assistant to the New York Times in the Beijing Bureau. I loved reporting, and so I went to Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, and I, I got a master's degree. And from there, I went straight to work. So I've worked as a business reporter at the Montreal Gazette and at the Boston Globe and at the Wall Street Journal. 
And then my last newspaper was the Globe and Mail, where I worked for about 20 years, starting as a business reporter, and then I became a foreign correspondent in Beijing, which was my career goal. I'd always wanted to go back to the place where I first started. And uh, I was a correspondent for six years. Then I came back to Toronto, and I wrote um, a really fun column called Lunch With. I took celebrities out to lunch and many times skewered them. And it was a very popular column. And then later on, I became a feature writer. And so in 2006, the story that I was sent to was a school shooting in Montreal. And I wrote a story that provoked this firestorm of protest and hate mail. And um, it was about uh, why in Quebec minorities might feel alienated. That was the nub of it. And everything stemmed from that story. Um, There was a backlash. My newspaper didn't support me. When I got the death threat, they refused to call the police, which was unheard of, because it wasn't my first first death threat. And the previous time, everything had been taken care of, but this time, no. And I think when you don't understand why something is happening, you, you, you get even more anxious. And my anxiety spiral down into depression, although I didn't didn't understand at the time what was happening to me. I just, I knew I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat, and I was crying all the time. And I, I was just, I had no idea what was happening to me. Now let's, you mentioned the depression, Jan. Please outline your experience with that. Well, I have to say I was quite... Um, unaware of the illness. I didn't really know. Um, It's something that we didn't really report on very much in the news business. And so when it hit me, things like I couldn't, um, I would have this panic attack, which I never had before. And what, what happened was I was afraid the person who had threatened to kill me was outside of my house, was across the street. And so when I got out of my car, I I decided to make a run for it from the garage to my front door. I also expected my family to know what was happening to me, to figure it out, and to be ready and by the door waiting to open it. And, of course, they weren't. They weren't. They were doing their own thing in the house, my two boys and my husband. So I had not taken my keys with me. I had a complete meltdown at the front door because I couldn't get in the door. I was so afraid this man was going to shoot me in my head. That's what he threatened in his letter. He said, I'm going to shoot a bullet through the back of your head. And um, I was just in this complete disarray. I was just unraveling. And I couldn't see what was happening to me. I know that um, my friend said, you better go see your doctor. And I knew that I, I really wanted to see my doctor. At the same time, I couldn't understand why I wanted to see my doctor because I wasn't bleeding, I didn't have a fever, I had no aches or pains, but I did have this desperate need to see my doctor. And interestingly, I couldn't get through to her on the phone. Now, as a, journal- as a journalist, no, we can reach anyone on the telephone. That's what we do professionally. But I was unable to get through to my doctor, so I actually went in person all the way downtown to her office and then I experienced something really interesting. I was really embarrassed when her receptionist said, well, what's it about? Like, okay, you want an appointment, but what for what? 
I didn't know what to say, and I just started to cry. I was so embarrassed. I didn't want anyone in the waiting room to hear me. I didn't even know what to say. And that was my first inkling of, of the stigma surrounding depression. I didn't understand it at the time, but of course, so all of this I'm experiencing and not understanding what's happening to me. But it's very, very common because the receptionist took one look at me and just slotted me in for the late afternoon, uh, you know, 50-minute appointment. I didn't even have to say it. She just knew. But I didn't understand at the time what was happening to me. Now, talking about the depression and what might have led to it, what are the factors <clears throat> that you, to which you attribute your depression? Well, I was subjected to racist attacks out of Quebec uh, for what I wrote. And by racist attacks, I mean the emails used really terrible language, told me to go back to China when, of course, I, my family has been in, in Canada and in Quebec for over a century. Um, there were attacks on my family's business, uh, my father's restaurants in Montreal. Uh, there was a call for a boycott of them. Uh, you mentioned Parliament, the denunciation. There were letters to the editor from the Prime Minister of Canada and the Premier of Quebec. But what really, I think, there were several major triggers, and one was the death threat. But more important than the death threat was the way my company handled it. They would not call the police, and that to me was a complete betrayal. Um, I am sent into dangerous areas. I went to New York on 9-11. I covered Tiananmen Square, and as a journalist, we put ourselves in harm's way for the story. And so I was so shocked when the death threat came to my office, and the security office said, no, you have to call them yourself. I just couldn't understand that. The other betrayal uh, was when my editor-in-chief wrote a column criticizing me in that weekend's paper, and I said to him, but didn't you edit the story? I mean, didn't you read it? It was a lead story in the weekend's paper the previous weekend, and he said he had. So I felt completely betrayed because when a newspaper publishes a story, they stand behind it. It wasn't, I didn't commit any journalistic crime. I didn't plagiarize. I didn't fabricate. I wrote a story. They published it, and they're supposed to stand behind me. Instead, they hung me out to dry. So I think betrayal Betrayal were those, was the main trigger, but then there was another big, big trigger, and that was when I became depressed, clinically depressed. I was diagnosed. I was off work. The company actually said, you're not sick. You, you get back to work, and that was um, probably terrible for any employee, but for me, uh, the, because I worked in a field where we, all we have is our integrity, uh, whenever we write a story, people have to take our word for it that what we wrote is true. That was the ultimate betrayal. And so I really, I really crashed into a very deep and prolonged depression. And meanwhile, the company uh, said, you're not sick, and they halted my sick pay. It was just, you know, unbelievable. And I had worked there for 20 years. I had never been sick. I had never had a sick note. So that's, you know, very, to me, I was, I was really shocked. I didn't understand why my company behaved like that, and I didn't understand anything about the symptoms of depression. I'm going to take the break now, Jan, because I, okay. I want to follow up with you on various of the key points. 
Um, but the word betrayal is what stays with me from this particular segment, and we'll explore that one too. So let's go to the break now. This is, as, as I always say, this is where we have to pay the rent. This is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guest is Jan Wong. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay with us. We will be back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com How do you feel about the future? Tune in each week for Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. You can be a great leader by learning from the inspiring stories of amazing visionaries who are shaping our future. Everyone deserves to create their own vision and Kate and her guests will share the tools that you need to make it happen. Make a weekly visit to the Voice America Business Channel for Visionary Leader, Extraordinary Life, every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Be inspired. Become inspiring. If you are having difficulty balancing everything in your life, be sure to tune in to Change is Personal with Kim Fuller. Each week, we'll help you do your own self-assessment to handling relationships, family, life challenges, health, and personal goals. Kim and her guests share from experiences and offer advice and resources to keep your life on track. Change is Personal with Kim Fuller can be heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Listen and start having a fuller life. We let so many outside factors mold and shape our lives. Technology, instant delivery. We live in an on-demand world. What's happened to the compassion, the kindness, a better pace? Listen to Might Radio with host Gabriella Von Ray. We'll bring that kindness and compassion back to our world. Our guests come from around the world and we'll discuss what's being done and what we can do to bring our lives back to order. Might Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Jan Wong. Our topic is depression, work-related stress, and family caregiving. Now, I'd like to ask you, Jan, to give us a little bit of an impression of the time. There was a moment in time when you were just fine, and there was another moment in time when you were at the doctor's office and you cried. What was the time interval? I think it was about a week to 10 days. And uh, I, so I was perfectly fine, perfectly healthy. And then I think there were about several terrible days, maybe four or five days. Yeah, four or five days of unrelenting unrelenting stress. Oh, maybe it was two weeks, actually. Now that I think about it, maybe it was two weeks before I went to see my 
doctor, but it wasn't a day. It wasn't two or three days. It was, it was, it was many days. I felt like I hadn't slept in two weeks. That's what it felt like. And I think I hadn't. And I'd never experienced that before either. Usually if you have one bad night, the next night you sleep really well. But this was, um, this was, uh, I probably should have seen her, I think, by the 10th day. But I think because she couldn't see me right away, I had to wait a bit longer. Yeah. Okay. Now, I'm going to ask you, um, what is work-related stress? You, you've been through it, and mm-hmm. I'd like your interpretation of what it actually is. I think work-related stress, I mean, everybody, many, many people put in very long hours, and they bring their work home with them, and that's not what I'm talking about. In a sense, I'm talking about workplace bullying. I think uh, in my book, in my book, Out of the Blue, I didn't use that term too often. I use the term workplace depression, but really, I think the triggers come from the betrayal, as I, as I mentioned earlier, but also workplace bullying. And what do I mean by that? I mean that um, management or somebody or your supervisor or somebody, it could be a colleague, but it's usually someone with power over you, uh, decides that uh, black is white and white is black, and you are being forced to accept their interpretation of events uh, when you know that it's not true, but because uh, you're not uh, the boss, you have to accept this. It's uh, an erosion of uh, their opinion of you, and you can't do anything about it. Um, it's a sense of powerlessness. And I know that from my research when I was writing this book, I know that when you lack control, that's one of the factors for depression, is a loss of control. And suddenly, you see, I was a, I was a star reporter at the Globe and Mail. I was one of the, of the sort of marquee reporters there. And I don't say that in a boasting way. I'm trying to say that in an objective way. And that's why... It was so fascinating to me that you could go from this special position of um, being at the top of your game and suddenly you're a pariah and uh, nothing you do is right because the company is not believing that you're clinically depressed and there's just no way out at that point because even though your doctor's and not just my family doctor, but eventually a third-party psychiatrist would affirm my illness, and eventually I would give up and go and see a psychiatrist. I resisted it for a long time. I didn't want to see a psychiatrist because I thought I would be okay. I thought I could manage. I thought I could get better. And when I realized I just couldn't, I went to see a psychiatrist. And even when he wrote a detailed report, they didn't believe. They said no. We don't believe that she's sick. So that, I think, is workplace bullying. That's what I mean by workplace stress. It's really, we don't think of bullying as something other than in the schoolyard, right? But I think that it actually continues into adulthood. And I don't think it's recognized. I think it's going to become uh, recognized soon. It's not recognized yet. I've met several people who are working on PhD thesis about this. I think it's a brand new area. Just to follow up on that, um, it sounds to me as though work-related stress 
isn't a very good term for what you're talking about. Your 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 description of bullying um, is much more direct and implies something else, which I'd like you to talk about. To what extent is this bullying and this unwillingness to recognize uh, the depression that you were going through, does that have anything to do with stigmatization? Absolutely. That's a very good point, and I think it's directly related. And I think that employers and insurance companies, cynically or not, certainly take advantage of the stigma surrounding a mental illness and depression. So because there, this is not an illness that can be measured with a thermometer or an X-ray, then if your employer, and they're not all like that, there are good employers, but if your employer elects not to believe you, you are in for a huge, huge battle. And in the defense of the employer, of course, there are sometimes cases of fraud. But then you have to say, well, in the employer could then look at the record of the employee and try to assess the claim of illness. And so in my case, I had no record of illness. I had no sick notes in my entire career at the Globe and Mail or at any previous newspaper. So I think that employers and insurance companies take advantage of the stigma. You already feel so bad. That's the definition of depression is you feel bad. You feel so bad already. If someone even questions whether or not you're sick, that just makes you feel ten times worse because you're already questioning yourself. Trust me, people who are going through a depression are constantly checking in with their psyche and saying, is this for real or am I a malingerer? I, I, I kept asking myself that. How can I be sick? Why can't I remember anything? How come I can't make a decision? How come I can't focus? How come I don't know what time to leave the house in order to be downtown for 10.30? Those are all the things that were happening to me. I couldn't go to work because I couldn't uh, remember. I couldn't remember what I was going to be doing in the morning or an hour from then. I would try really hard. I would write it all down, and I would keep looking at my my notebook, and I couldn't remember appointments. I know that... Um, I know that, you see, I went back for six weeks in the, when I thought I was better. My doctor said, really, you're not better. You're, you should go back part-time, and I didn't want to listen. I was so anxious to get back. And I remember I had a relapse after six weeks at work, and the relapse, I remember that I had to, I couldn't work. Suddenly, I just crashed again, and I knew I had an, some interviews scheduled for the next day. I had to cancel I could not remember, and to this day, I cannot remember what those interviews were. And so I, I felt so terrible, but I just didn't show up. I didn't remember what the topic was. I didn't remember who it was with. I mean, that's, that's one reason I couldn't function as a reporter. When I couldn't go to work, that was the reason. If you can't remember who you're talking to as a journalist, that's pretty terrible. You can't work. And so I just remember... I just remember thinking, you know, how do you prove you're sick to an employer who doesn't believe you? And 
it was really terrible. It was really hard. And people who are suffering depression are the least able to advocate for themselves. And I think and it's partly because of the stigma, but I think partly the illness itself means you, you haven't got any ability to to stand up for yourself because another symptom of depression is that your self-esteem is almost non-existent. You plunge to zero. And so what does that mean? It means that you're, you think you're worthless. You think that everything is your fault. And uh, it, it was interesting to me because normally I have a pretty robust self-esteem, but when I was depressed, I, I was afraid to sit beside people on the bus because I would be afraid of rejection. <laughs> you know, this is a public bus, and I would be afraid to sit beside someone. Jan, you've talked about bullying, uh, you've talked about betrayal, and you've also talked about stigmatization. But I'm also hearing in what you're saying and what you're describing um, a strong sense of extreme vulnerability. That is to say, the illness and the circumstances are, if you like, working together, conspiring almost, yeah. to render the person vulnerable. Is that right? Is that something yeah. you recognize? You're ultra-sensitive. You misread innocent words, innocent actions. You misread things because you have a warped uh, perspective of reality. You're extremely vulnerable, so extremely sensitive, hypersensitive, and very vulnerable. And um, I guess it's like as if, if, it, if you were thinking in physical terms, it would be as if you were bruised all over your body, and any touch would hurt, hurt more than a normal touch. And so if you think of depression as a complete bruising of your mind, then anything that is said to you, can you can easily uh, misconstrue. And any, you know, look or glance, you, you, don't, you don't interpret it properly because your brain is all askew. Uh, I, I found it really interesting, and I, I mentioned this in the book. I, I mentioned going to the doctor's office and thinking that the counter for the receptionist was really high and the glass... So, protecting her from the patients was really thick, and I, I thought that she had a very harsh voice. And then when I went back, when I was better, I looked at it at the counter again, and it was just normal height. The glass wasn't thick at all. It was just a thin glass, and she had a pleasant voice. It wasn't, she was very rushed because she, you know, everybody's working so hard these days, but she wasn't nasty. So I thought that was fascinating that I, when I was depressed, I had a completely different view of reality. And for the depressed person, that is the reality. You can't argue that that isn't really their reality because that is what they're seeing and hearing. So there's an altered perception of, I know the word reality is often misused, but there's an altered perception of what's actually going on around you. Yeah, that's yeah, right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, even to physical things like the thickness of the screen or the voice yeah. of the receptionist. Right, yeah. and sometimes I felt cold. I felt cold all the time because I was being, I was under total, complete stress. So it was almost as if I was like an accident victim after a a, a car accident where you haven't been injured, um, you haven't suffered a broken bone or a concussion or anything, but you're shaking because you're cold because you're in shock, and I think. That happens, too, when you're depressed. I felt cold all the time. 
very yeah. odd. Even in the summer, I, I felt cold. I had to have a blanket on when I went to sleep. It was very strange because the physical, we think of it as a mental illness, but there's definitely a physical component to being depressed. Now, we're going to come back to that because, once again, we've got to take our break. Um, this is Dr. Gordon Adley, and my guest is Jan Wong. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay tuned. We're coming back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. How can we Americans realize our dreams to earn a living? How can you pursue your dream and make money as an owner or an employee? Learn how at The American Business Person, the online weekly radio talk show hosted by Rich Killian. Today's business leaders share how to succeed and what fails. If you own a new or established business or ever hope to, you must tune in. Join us every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central, and noon Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Or listen on demand to our archived shows. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Jan Wong. Our topic is depression, work-related stress, and family caregiving. Now, Jan, I want to talk about help for people with depression. So please tell us about your family and the help you got from family caregiving. When I was first sick and, and my family doctor said, okay, you take two weeks off, and I was quite shocked, and I, she said, you go to do the things you like. You garden and you, go, you love music, so go to the symphony. And I was quite worried. I said, that doesn't sound like, you know, I'm sick. It sounds like I'm playing hooky. And she said, no. That's that's how you treat this. So I went home and told my family. And the next thing I knew, my teenage son, Ben, uh, said to me, Mom, I've got tickets for the symphony. Would you like to go? And I was shocked. And I didn't even put the two things together. 
I, because I was so out of it, I just thought, wow, Ben hates the symphony, but he's got tickets and he's going to take me. So that's how he was trying. I, I know, I remember we went, I felt very happy that he had taken me and he went right to sleep. <laughs> and, uh, but I, he tried his best and my family, of course, didn't know what was happening to me. We didn't, they didn't know anything about depression. They kept trying to help. I have to say my two boys were 13 and 16 when I went through this, and it lasted, in my case, for two years, and the aftermath was a, a, a while longer, and uh, they both tried to help, and so they took over the cooking and um, the cleaning up, and they, my older son, who wasn't, who was kind of mediocre in high school, he somehow pulled himself together and became a straight-A student. I think it was in response to all the chaos at home. He just decided he had to get to a good university. <laughs> he was going to get away from home. So I think subconsciously he was trying to get out of high school so he could get away. Um, my younger son was often the mediator because I would often I would yell at my older son. Uh, I would be so angry. I was very angry. That's another component of my depression was I was furious. At so much because I was losing everything at work. I was losing my my work, the stuff I loved so much. I was losing my mind. I couldn't remember anything. I was so angry, and um, so I would get mad at my older son to the extent that one day I wanted to throw his laptop out the window. And my younger son, then thirteen, he just wrapped me in a bear hug, so I couldn't actually throw the laptop out the window, and tried to calm me down. Both of my sons went to my husband and said, you know, what are we going to do? We can't stand this. And my husband would say to them, Mom is sick. You know, you just have to, we have to put up with this. My husband was wonderful. He just was always there. And um, I remember one Christmas, I think we didn't have any money because my sick pay had been stopped and he didn't have a job at that point. He's in IT and he was in one of those many layoffs. And he went to the big hardware store, and he bought me a really good stove. But he knew enough not to just buy it. He, he knew enough to bring home the right the brochure for the model and say, this is what I want to get you for Christmas. Are, are, are you okay with it? And, but I thought it was so wonderful because he doesn't usually buy, buy gifts. He's never organized. So I, I just felt so touched. And really, my family was there encouraging me, and one of the most important things they did was, you see, I was not a normal case of, of depression, of workplace depression. I insisted on the right to speak and to write about what had happened to me, and that's why it took so long for my uh, newspaper, the Globe and Mail, to settle with me, because one of the main things they wanted was for me never to speak about this. And I insisted, and my family was behind me all the way because it wasn't um, the settlement. I had to have the right to speak. I had to have the right to tell my own story. And my family didn't say, just forget it. Why don't you just take the deal and let's just move on with our lives? They never said that. They said, it's important to you to be able to speak, so we're with you on this. And I just I just think it's... Um, it's so important for families of depressed people to understand two things, that this is a real illness, and secondly, 
you're not enabling the person to wallow in it just by being good to them. And I want to say that it would be like if you um, had a relative with cancer and you thought that if you were good to them, they would just wallow in their cancer. That would be the equivalent. And the other thing I want to say is people think, sometimes friends and family think that, well, I'm nice to you. Why don't you get better? How come, you know, I just spent all this time taking you for a walk and you're not better? The parallel, of course, is cancer. If you're nice to somebody with cancer, you don't expect them to get better just because you're nice to them. And the same thing happens with depression. It certainly is good for the person with depression to have loving, supportive people around them. It's not going to cure them because that takes care, that's taken care of with medication and psychotherapy and, and talk therapy, and sometimes the illness just runs its course. So I want people to think of depression just like any other illness, to be supportive of the person, but don't expect the person to get better just because you're nice to them. And don't take it personally when they don't get better just because you're nice to them. Right. You mentioned things that you are given by the healthcare system. Tell us, please, about the help you got from the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was very lucky. Uh, first of all, I have a good family doctor, and not everybody is able to find even an ordinary family doctor. I had a very good one. She'd been my doctor for decades, 20 years. Um, she recognized what it was right away. That's also very helpful. Sometimes family doctors are not that prepared. They're not, they don't know. Um, but if you're lucky, your family doctor will diagnose it. And she, when I wasn't getting better, she's the one who wanted to recommend me to a specialist. And I resisted that for, I don't know, six months. And then I gave up and I said, okay. And I was then again very lucky because a psychiatrist agreed to take me almost, you know, within two or three days, which is not normal. It's usually a nine-week wait to see a psychiatrist. Uh, and I happen to have, I also happen to luck at, I got a really good psychiatrist, and you have to click with your psychiatrist. If, it, if you don't click with your psychiatrist, you need to find another one, because if it, you have to have some degree of trust for any kind of therapy to work. And I was very lucky. I felt, I, I, I had, I felt he understood, although I don't, I remember thinking, I don't know what he does, because all I do is sit there and cry. <laughs> and eventually, you know, I realize what he does is he listens, and then he says something that will give you a nudge in a new direction. And it was only after I was writing the book, uh, Out of the Blue, that I sort of analyzed backwards what he had done for me. Um, so I was very lucky. And then he prescribed medication. My family doctor wanted medication, wanted me to take Effexor, and I, I resisted. She even gave me a free sample, and I still resisted. And normally, I take free samples. And then my family doc, uh, my psychiatrist tried me on um, medication. I resisted at first, and then I finally agreed. And we went through four different kinds before uh, the last one seemed to work. John, tell us why you were so hesitant initially about going to see a psychiatrist. What was it? Well, to me, uh, in my uh, ignorance and prejudice, I thought a psychiatrist meant I was crazy. 
and I didn't want to be crazy or I didn't want to categorize myself as crazy because as a journalist, I worked with my mind and I, I felt this would be really bad if I acknowledged that I had a, a mind disease. Um, I know that my doctor said that if you ever want, my family doctor said if you ever want to work in management, they'll find out that you've seen a psychiatrist and they, and you won't ever be able to be a manager. I didn't intend ever to be a manager. I have no desire to be a manager. So, but there was that stigma. And I think it was a stigma. Most people don't want to say they see a psychiatrist. They feel embarrassed. And it, cause, cause of all the connotations of the stigma of mental illness. So, most and you know the doctor, my psychiatrist has no sign on his door saying he's a psychiatrist. It says he's a doctor, and um, very interesting. They have this, and I don't know, this, he has an entrance, yeah, a tiny waiting room, and then he has you go through a, a succession of doors before you get to his main room. But when you leave, you don't go through the same entryway. You go through another special exit. And that's so, and the exit doesn't even open straight onto the corridor. You go through another set of doors so that no one could ever glimpse the inside of the room. So no one could ever eavesdrop or hear a word, a stray word. And I think that's all from the stigma. Because most doctors' offices is, is one entrance. You go in, you come out. There's no, you know, you go in one door and you sneak out the back door. This one was basically a sneaking out the back door setup. It was very, very interesting to me as a journalist because when I knew I was going to write about this, I started observing everything and thinking, why? Why do they do that? Why does he have no receptionist? Well, he has no receptionist because people with depression are so embarrassed to even be seen in the doctor's office. They don't want to talk to another party about the depression. And so the psychiatrist does all his own appointments himself. He keeps track of it himself. There's no secretary there's no nurse, there's no receptionist. It's all fascinating to me, the, the secrecy surrounding psychiatry. Now, on that point, we're going to take the break. Um, this is Dr. Gordon Adley. My guest is Jan Wong. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay tuned. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. Are you happy with the management and leadership style of your organization? Do you think it could use some improvement? No matter the level of leadership at your organization, you'll be sure to learn something new when you tune in to Adesis Methodology for Collaborative Management for Exceptional Results with Dr. Ishak Adesis. Through a unique lecture and interview format, we'll bring you ideas, questions, and answers that will help you run any organization, whether for-profit or not. Listen every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to doc at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Jan Wong. Our topic is depression, work-related stress, and family caregiving. Jan, I want to hear your messages about depression. And the first uh, message, what is it that you would like to give as a message about depression to the healthcare system? Well, I'm not sure it's just to the healthcare system, but I want to tell all the people listening, that depression is so common. It's the common cold of, the, of brain diseases, uh, of emotional illness. One in five people will get it in their lifetime, and twice as many women as men. I did not know that. I did not know anything when, I, when it hit me. I want people to know that it's so common that the chances are extremely high that someone in your family or you yourself will suffer it. And the second thing I want people to know is that it's entirely treatable and that one of the symptoms, like you can take antidepressants and there are certain side effects, but antidepressants are not addictive and they're not for life. Once you come out of your depression, you don't have to stay on the antidepressants. But if you have a lifelong depression, then you will stay on it. And I think that's fine. It would be as if you need medication for blood pressure. And I I believe it's the stigma uh, of surrounding mental illness that makes people think antidepressants are terrible. I certainly resisted a long time for no reason except the stigma, I think, that's around it. So I want people to know that the treatment is there. It does work. For me, it was a bit rocky. I had to go through four different antidepressants until I found one that worked. Not even 100% sure it worked because I could have been coming out of my depression. But what I want to emphasize is that it's common and there's treatment. And I also want to say that we need to start a national conversation about mental illness and depression because I think the stigma kills more people than the depression. I think that the stigma and the ignorance surrounding mental illness, surrounding depression, is probably worse than the impact of the disease itself. And because people 
because of this stigma, people don't get the help they need. They don't recognize the illness. The family members don't know what to do. They don't want to tell anyone. And it's toxic to feel bad about feeling bad. It's really terrible to be in the closet about depression. So those are the three things I want to tell people. Let's get rid of the stigma. Let's talk about it. It's treatable. And so many of us are going to get it. Right. Your message about depression for employers. My message to employers is that now the latest uh, statistic is one in five employees have it on the job. And employers have to really get with the program. And I believe they're in the dark ages as far as attitude. So they have to... Uh, it's actually helpful to the bottom line if they understand this is a treatable illness, that it's common, but ignoring it is not going to make it go away. And ignoring it will, will cost you a lot more money than if you, um, if you confronted it and you dealt with it and you accepted it. I sort of liken it to the way employers used to be, maybe in the 50s about women and pregnancy. Employers used to automatically dismiss women who were pregnant. But now we see uh, pregnancy as a human right. We see it as part of the human condition. We see it as a normal part of, of the workplace, that there will be employees who will get pregnant, not the end of the world. They will take a maternity leave, and this will be built into the costs of running a business, and I think employers have to build the cost of treating employees with depression into the business model. Right now, uh, if you fight an employee on it, yes, some of them will leave, some of them will just quit in, in distress, but let me tell you, there's a cost to your bottom line when employees do that, because the survivors in the workplace look at it and go, oh my God. They see what happens. That is very bad for morale. It doesn't help uh, your productivity if people are dragging themselves to work when they really can't function. They're just sort of sitting there pretending they're working. None of that helps. So it helps. The bottom line will be enhanced once employers understand that depression is a reality of the human condition, and it's it's a it's actually a human right to be sick. To, to be told you're not sick and to get back to work. I mean, that was in the Industrial Revolution. We used to have workplaces like that. But now in the 21st century, I think employers have to get enlightened. I'd like to see HR departments get trained in this. And they have to see that if an employee suddenly has a, a drastic change in behavior or productivity, then there's something wrong. And they have to look at it. And they shouldn't automatically say you're faking it you know, get back to work. What's your message about depression for family caregivers? That is to say, what is it you want to say to family caregivers about depression in a family member? When your family member gets sick like this with clinical depression, it will be hard on you. They won't see any joy in the normal things they used to like. And for you as a caregiver, you have to be supportive. You have to um, be patient. You 
have to do things with them that they um, make that makes them feel better. And you can't tell them to just shake it off. You can't tell them to snap out of it any more than you can tell them to snap out of I don't know prostate cancer. Um, so. If you understand that this is a real illness and it's caused by an imbalance of chemicals in the brain and it's not something that they can control with attitude, then you will help them immensely just by being there for them and saying that you you understand and, you know, you're there for them. That That's what you can do. Um, at the same time, it's very hard to be around a depressed person. So the caregiver must take breaks. The caregiver also must look after themselves and must go out and do things on their own. Um, they also should be aware of, the, as you mentioned, the possibility of suicide. And I think they should talk about this openly, not in the sense of giving them ideas, but talk about it frankly and say this is a symptom of depression. It is a symptom, and if you are feeling like this, we have to go get help right away. Uh, to talk about it and bring it out in the open is one of the most important things a family, a, a caregiver can do, and take away the stigma by talking about it. Jan, we're coming to the end now, but I have just one quick additional question for you, and that is this. I want you to tell us what you're doing now. Okay. Well, I have just published the book on on my memoir on workplace depression, Out of the Blue. So I am actually doing quite a lot of talks. Uh, I'm talking to public libraries. I'm talking to mental health conferences. I'm talking to all kinds of, of groups, uh, lawyers and all kinds of groups. But also I have a new career. Uh, as a teacher, I'm a professor of journalism at St. Thomas University in Fredericton, New Brunswick. And I now live in two cities because my husband's still in Toronto. So I spend the academic year in Fredericton, and I come back to Toronto a lot. And um, I, I feel like I'm the one who's back at university learning things because I have to learn so much just to be able to teach teach students. I, and I love my job, and I love living in another part of Canada. Uh, the Maritimes is especially wonderful. The people are really, really nice. And John, John, I'm sorry to do this to you, but I have to stop you there because of the tyranny of time. But the point that you've made is that you're back in a new career. To use another phrase, you're back up and running. That's and what right. That yeah, and what that underscores is an important message, or two messages, three messages, from what you've been talking to us. There is hope. It is treatable. Family caregiving is important because it's part of the support, but it is a burden on families in, in, in the sense that it's a workload, it's something they have to undertake, and it's something that may they may not fully understand what really the importance of what they're doing is. So all of that comes together for me to say to you, thank you for being so open. Thank you for sharing with us what, uh, I won't use any phrases other than was what was a difficult experience, but it's an experience from which you've uh, not just survived, 
but surfaced as a leader in a particular area of importance that is combating misunderstanding and also uh, stigmatization associated with depression and other mental illnesses. So thank you, Jan, for that. Thank you very much for having me on your show. You're very welcome. Now, I want to say thank you to our listeners, uh, Family Caregivers Unite. We welcome hearing from you. If you have any comments on this episode, please email them to us. We also want to hear from people who would like to be our guests or who have suggestions for topics. And in our next episode, we'll talk about autism, police and emergency services. Please join us. Same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful.